Well, if you'd like to turn to John chapter 5 for scripture this morning. We'll be reading from John chapter 5, verse 19 through 30. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Our Father, I pray that you would speak powerfully to us today. The word that you have before us is so deep, it's so rich, Father, that I just don't feel worthy of even uh, being the one to preach on it, but I trust that you're the true teacher here today. I trust that you're the true preacher here today. I trust, Father, that as we open up the bread of your word, that you will feed your people by your spirit. And so I thank you for what you'll do, Father. I pray that you would use this text to shape in us a way of life. I pray that you would work in us until we can say, as Jesus said, that we do nothing of our own accord, but we do only what the Father, what we see the Father doing. So thank you, Father, for your patient work in us, and we pray that you'd come now again and work in us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. By the grace of his heart and the power of his hand, Jesus had healed a man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. Although that man was crippled for 38 years, think about that, almost four decades of time, the Lord looked at him and said, get up, take up your mat and walk. And by the power of God, he did. That pool was not far from the temple complex in Jerusalem. And so as that man began to walk with his mat on his shoulder, some of the the sort of religious police, if you will. Some of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem began to interrogate him. They said, what are you doing? Why are you carrying this mat? It's the Sabbath day, and it's not right. It's not legal. It's not allowable that you would do such a thing. They had a a rule that they had made up, that a person could not carry a burden above their shoulders. And so they were there not to ask this man what God had done for him, but to accuse this man for what they thought he was doing. Surely that man was taken back by their question and by their tone because he now probably for the first time in his life was walking. Imagine that you had never walked in your life or at least since the time you were a little child you had never walked and now because one man spoke a word to you 
a man who then disappeared into the crowd, a man who you didn't even know his name. He spoke a word to you, and now all of a sudden you can walk. Imagine the elation you would feel, and imagine the shock, the the disappointment, maybe the disillusionment that you would feel when all of a sudden you're surrounded by religious leaders who are grilling you and questioning you about this great thing that God had done. The man told them, he was carrying his mat because he was told to carry his mat. And he confessed to them that he never even got Jesus' name. Jesus did what he did and disappeared into the crowd. So the man didn't even know who had done this great thing for him. Sometime later, Jesus found this man in the temple and celebrated this healing with him. And he said to the man, stop sinning unless something greater than this happens to you. And surely what Jesus meant is that it's an amazing enough thing that you went from physical, uh, a, a state of being crippled into a state of physical health. That's amazing enough. But you have a much greater problem and that's a sin problem that has alienated you from God. And if you take your healing and use it for the things of the flesh, you're gonna be forever separated from God and this will be a, a much, much worse fate than being crippled for 38 years. So stop sinning. Fix your eyes upon God. Use your freedom for the glory of God and not to indulge your flesh. With that, the man now knew who healed him and so he went and told the authorities, probably because he was under obligation to do so and probably because he feared what the authorities would do to him if he did not tell them who had in fact healed him and commanded him to take up his mat and walk. Whatever that man's motives were, I told you last week, I I take a positive view of him. Others take a negative view of him. I suppose it's something we can debate. But whatever his motives were, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem now began to persecute Jesus because of what had happened. And so Jesus looked at them and simply explained. He said, listen, my father is working until now. It's the Sabbath day, but my father is working, and therefore I am working. Jesus was saying that his actions were founded upon his father's actions. He was saying that he was not merely acting out on his own. He was not being rebellious. He was not trying to push the boundaries of what's allowable and not allowable. He, in fact, was the most submitted man in Jerusalem to God. And he was, in fact, the most submitted man on the earth to God. He was seeing his father working and he was following his father as he worked. This was not a pleasing answer to the religious leaders of the day. In fact, they took it rather poorly. If you look at chapter 5, verse 18, you'll see what they thought. John writes, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Can you imagine that? Imagine what Jesus had just done and why the explanation he gave for why he had done what he did, and now the religious leaders want to snuff his life out. They sought all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So please notice that they're leveling two charges at him, both of which in their legal environment and their religious environment were deadly serious. Number one, they were accusing him of being a Sabbath breaker because he healed on the Sabbath and also because he commanded somebody else to do work on the Sabbath. And I told you last week that in their way of thinking, causing somebody else to sin was a a greater sin than sinning yourself. So in general, he's a Sabbath breaker, but there's two parts of it. He worked on the Sabbath and he caused somebody else to work on the Sabbath. The second charge was that he was a blasphemer. He was calling God my father. 
In the Jewish environment, when they worshiped God in the synagogues, there was a prayer that they would say every time they worshiped, wherein they would say to God, our Father, our Father, our Father. But nobody in their time said, my Father. For them, this was to make one not only particularly intimate with God, but this was to make oneself equal with God. This was to take one's status up to a place that for them was blasphemous. And so they were charging him with blasphemy. And believe me, that was a deadly sin in that day. Jesus, I think, saw at least that there was some merit in what they were saying. Even if their heart was off, what they were saying did deserve an answer. And so he answered. In verses 19 through 30, he gave his answer to them. It was definitely not a pleasing answer to them, but he did answer. And then in verses 31 to 47, he justified his answer, which we'll consider next week. For this week, we're just going to look at verses 19 through 30. If you'll notice in verse 19, Jesus begins by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, with all the earnestness that I can muster, I say this to you, that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Beloved, that's a very extreme statement. And it's a statement that we really should carefully ponder and carefully consider our own way of life in light of. Even though Jesus was in the beginning with God as one who was in fact God, even though all things without exception came into being through Jesus, whether in heaven or on earth, whether visible or invisible, even though life and light are things that are inherent to the very being of Jesus and things that are within the very power of Jesus, even though Jesus is so great that the darkness will not and in fact cannot overcome him forever, even though Jesus willingly took on flesh and manifested for us the truth of God and the grace of God in the world, even though Christ Jesus is the singular manifestation of the glory of God in heaven and on earth, even though he is so great as this beloved, he said, I cannot do a single thing on my own accord, or as the Greek literally reads, of myself. I cannot do a single thing of or from myself, but I can only do what I see the Father doing. Is that something that characterizes your way of life? Just think about what life would be like if you could say that about yourself. In all his greatness and glory, Jesus is gladly constrained by the words and the will of his Father. For again, he only does what he sees his Father doing. And whatever he sees his Father doing, that he surely does. Both things are important. In other words, I'm saying that even as Jesus Christ has perfect eyes to see the work of his Father, he also has a perfect will, a perfect heart to do the will of his Father. Do you see the difference between those two things? Uh, a couple weeks ago, the man who came to speak to us at our Abba banquet talked about the, the story of the Good Samaritan and how the guy was sitting by the side of the road and, and at first you had three religious leaders just sort of pass on the other side so that they wouldn't have to be disturbed by helping this man who had just been beaten up and surely was near to death. If you had stopped any of those religious leaders and interviewed them, all of them would have agreed that they had a heart for helping the needy. All of them would have said that they're all pro helping the guy who's just been beaten and left by the side of the road. But John Enzor said to us that to be pro-life isn't just to have the theoretical position, but it's to go out of your way and do something about what you see. 
you see somebody dead by the side of the road or dying by the side of the road, the one who really has a heart for the needy will stop everything and do something about it. And so what I'm saying is that Jesus isn't just someone who had a a theoretical desire to know his Father's works. He's not a person who only saw what God was doing. He's a person who had a heart to engage in what his Father was doing. And the only thing that Jesus engaged in in his life from day to day to day were the things that he saw his Father doing. Beloved, let me ask you again. Do you live your life like this? Do you live to look for the works of God in your life? Do you have eyes to see the works of God? Can you draw to mind over the last few days anything that you have seen clearly that God is up to? Do you engage in the works of God in your life and only in the works of God in your life? Or do other people and things capture your vision and your affection and your attention and your time and your talent and treasure? What is really driving you in this life? Beloved Jesus, did indeed claim to be equal with God. He's basically saying, you're right about the charge that you're making against me. I am saying that I'm equal with God. However, we need to understand, he was not claiming independence from God. He was not one that came on the scene and said, listen, I'm really the man, I'm the fulfillment of all things. Forget everything that God has said, forget everything God has done, I'm here to show you the true way. No, this one came in full submission to God the Father. This one came and said, I am equal with God as one who is utterly and happily dependent upon God. And if one so great as Jesus lived his life like this, how then should we live our lives? What should our lives be driven by? What what should we care about most? What should we think about more than anything else when we're thinking about the things that we want to do and the things that we want to engage in? As I pondered these things, I began to ask myself what I think is a very important question, and that is, how did Jesus see his Father's works? It makes a lot of sense to say, I I only do what I see my Father doing, but as I pondered his life day by day, you know, he's just a man who had to get up and eat and do all the things that human beings have to do. How did he have eyes to see what his Father was doing? Well, at a human level, Jesus is probably giving, uh, this is a sort of an illustration because as a young man, he grew up in the house of a carpenter. And if you grew up in the house of a carpenter, you were trained to be a carpenter, right? And how do you become a carpenter? Well, I grew up with three older brothers who are all cabinet makers, and they're quite a bit older than me. In fact, my brother Rick is 16 years older than me, and I, every time I see him, I like to remind him about how much older he is than me. But I used to love going to the shop and watching my brothers work. They're master cabinet makers. And so first you learn the trade by beholding. You see your, in this case, my brother's works. In Jesus' case, his father's works. And soon, and soon the father begins in involving the son and saying, son, you can do this part. Let me show you how to do it. Now you do it and I'll watch. And then slowly but surely, the son becomes a competent carpenter, and and slowly but surely, the son grows up and doesn't just be referred to as the, the carpenter's son, but he himself now becomes the carpenter. He's watching his father, he's imitating his father, he's becoming like his father. In a similar way, I think that Jesus grew up looking to his heavenly father, seeking his heavenly father as one who never sinned and who therefore never lost interest in God. He never let his attention drop off of God. He was never for a second bored with God, distracted by anything else. 
and his affections were always fully given to God his Father. As he grew, he learned the word of God. He learned it backward and forward. He didn't just know the words, he knew the intentions. He knew the heart of the word of God. He advanced in the practice of prayer. He advanced in the privilege that we have of talking with our heavenly Father. And as he did these things, he gained eyes to see his Father's work in his daily life. And he gained eyes, uh, he gained a heart to join with his Father in that daily work. The Word of God was not and is not revealed to us, beloved, just so that we'll know about things that God did a very long time ago that have nothing to do with our daily lives now. The Word of God was revealed to us so that we would understand the heart of our Father and the will of our Father and so that we would happily follow our Father all the days of our lives. Jesus is the sole human being who got this all the way to the depths of his soul. The main way that he gained eyes to see the works of his father when he walked into the temple that day was he was a man of the word and prayer. He knew how his father thought. He knew how his father acted in the world. He was in constant communication with his father. So surely as he walked nearer to the temple complex, he was saying, Father, what would you have me do? Father, what would you have me say? And surely when the time was right, the father showed him all things and then Jesus engaged in the things that the Father showed him. Indeed, if you look at verse 20, you'll see another reason why Jesus know, or, or another way that Jesus knew the works of his Father. In verse 20 he said, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So the Son sees the works of the Father because the Father is delighted to reveal his works to the Son. To give you another example from my life, I've told you plenty of times that I grew up in the restaurant business. I grew up working around my mother and father as they worked their works. And from the time I was just a little tyke, my father loved me and he loved to show me his work. There was sometimes his work was way above my head. It's not something that I could do, but he taught it to me anyways because he wanted to celebrate that with me. He was showing me his trade, not just because of some kind of a transaction was happening, but because he loved me. And really, the work just became an excuse for us to develop our relationship. And beloved, I just want us to understand, God the Father revealed himself to his Son because he loves his Son. In so many ways, the whole work of the kingdom of God on the earth, pouring through the life of Jesus, was only just a backdrop to increase the communion between the Father and the Son. The work, in a very real sense, was secondary. The love that the Father had for the Son, that was primary. The Jewish leaders were caught in the death-producing trap of legalism. And believe me, it is a death-producing trap. Paul calls legalism the doctrine, the teaching of demons, beloved. And the reason that's so is because legalism rips the heart out of the law of God. As I said in the last message, while we can commend the Jewish leaders for seeking to honor the commandments of God by defining the particulars of what it looks like to obey God, we should not follow in their path. We absolutely should not follow in their path. If God wanted to define the particular details of our obedience down to the nth degree, you remember some of the things we read last week that they said? You can't bind sheaves on the Sabbath. You can't dye wool on the Sabbath. You can't write two letters on the Sabbath. For some reason, you can write one letter, but you can't write two letters. You can't pick anything up above shoulder level. Just an unbelievable level of, of, of 
uh, explanation of the things that can and cannot be done on the Sabbath. If God wanted to do that, He Himself could have done that. But our Father is wiser than legalists. And what He decided to do was to teach us the principles with sufficient detail and then teach us how to walk out those principles moment by moment and day by day until we learn from the depth of our heart to discern what is right and what is wrong, until we learn from the depth of our heart to follow our Father rather than to follow the world or to follow our flesh or to follow Satan himself. Legalists seek to raise up children who are experts at knowing and obeying all the rules, whether those are physical or spiritual children. Lovers seek to raise up children who are experts in healthy relationships and who understand that rules exist to protect and prosper the relationship itself. God did not create us just so that we could keep rules. He created us to be in a loving relationship with him. And of course, inside any healthy relationship, of course, there are rules. But legalists feel that we exist for the rules. Lovers, God being the greatest lover, says, no, no, the rules exist to prosper and to protect the relationship. Legalists seek to raise up robots. Just do what you're told Don't talk back, don't think about it too much. Lovers seek to raise up competent, mature adults who know how to think through issues and who know how to make good decisions. Beloved, God is a lover and not a legalist. He shows his works to the Son because he loves the Son. You see, at the heart of it all is an amazing, loving relationship. And so there Jesus was, answering for his actions to a pack of very powerful legalists in order to show them the life-giving way of love. One fear of legalists is that if we go in this direction, if we live our lives in this way, if we fail to define all the particulars of our obedience, that we will then be led by our feelings more than the word of God. We'll have to be led by our intuition more than by rules, and they just feel safer if you can point to a list of rules and say, this is what we're supposed to be about but I invite you to think carefully about the kind of path that Jesus is commending to us today. The path that he is revealing to them then and and was revealing to them then and is revealing to us now is actually shot through with the word of God. It is all about the word of God because careful and regular meditation upon the word of God, careful and regular conversation with the God of the word, that is the way that a person gains eyes to see the actual works of God. And I promise you that when someone detaches themselves from the word of God, no matter what their public speech is, if they detach from the particulars of the word of God, they become more and more blind to the works of God in the world because their whole worldview comes to be informed either by their flesh or by the world, or by the devil himself. The way that we walk and the way Jesus uh, is commending to us here is by being saturated with the word of God. It is not at all a rejection of the word in favor of feelings. In fact, it is an absolute embrace of the particulars of the word and also the heart that are behind the word. Living in this way is not a matter of adding to the speech of the Bible. Rather, it is a way of living our entire lives in light of what is in the Bible. And so when we commend regular Bible reading and Bible meditation and Bible memory here at this church, believe me, it's not with the heart of legalists. The legalistic uh, 
embrace of the word of God will actually make you a Pharisee. The Pharisees knew the details of the word, but they missed the whole point because they didn't see the first command. They might have seen it with their eyes, but they didn't get it with their lives, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. When Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath, when he commanded him to pick up his mat and walk, when he claimed that he was working because his father was working, beloved, he was walking in love. That's what Jesus was doing. He was looking to his father. He was listening to his father. He was following the lead of his father. And then he poured the love of his father out upon one man in the midst of a multitude. Why did he choose only one? You may remember from last week that there was a whole multitude of sick people near the pool of Bethesda, all of whom were hoping to be healed. Jesus chose only one that day. Why did he choose only one? Well, I don't know the details. All I know is that he chose one because the Father only led him to one. Here was a man fully submitted to his Father, walking in the ways of his Father, and this is why he did what he did. Jesus was not disrespecting the law. He was not breaking the Sabbath when he did what he did. Rather, he was actually fulfilling the law by walking in love. God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ are lovers and not legalists. While this miracle was stunning in its own right, and I think the more you think about the details of it, the more you'll see that it's a, quite a stunning thing to just speak a couple words and have a person walk after 38 years of being crippled. The Father, Jesus said, would eventually show the Son even greater things so that the leaders of Israel, the entire nation of Israel, and indeed all the nations of the earth would see what the Father was doing through the Son be totally astonished at him and fall on their face in worship of him. Please look at verse 21. Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, this is a very well-crafted statement. Unless you were in the Jewish environment, you might not get some of the undercurrent of what's happening here. Among the Jewish leaders... Only the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees and other powerful leaders said there is no resurrection of the dead, and there are reasons for that that I'll maybe go into another time. But Jesus knew that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus knew that they believed that God the Father would be the one to speak and, and to have all of the dead be raised and judged in the final day. And so Jesus was sending a clear signal to them that he was in agreement with them on this point. However, the Pharisees believed, as I said, that only God the Father had the power to raise the dead, and now Jesus was saying, wait a minute, he's not the only one, because as a, a father to his son, he has entrusted to me all the power of resurrection and all the power of life. Just like God the Father can give life to whoever he wants to give life to, I can do that too. Now, I fear that we're so familiar with Jesus, so familiar with the Bible, that we don't hear the scandal of these words. Imagine uh, your pastor or somebody coming up into this pulpit and saying, hey, listen, I know you've heard all this time that only God does all these great things, but I can also do these things because God has given them to me. Beloved, this was not good news to the Pharisees. This didn't do much to heal the divide between Jesus and the Pharisees. He was telling them the truth, but I hope that we can see the scandal of what he was saying, the extremity of what he was saying. He basically was saying, oh, I'm a lot more equal than God than you think I am. I'm as powerful as God because God the Father has granted this to me. It's not because I've struck out on my own. It's not because I'm trying to make my own way or build my own kingdom. 
It's because I am fully submitted to the Father and God the Father loves me and has entrusted into my very hands the power of resurrection and the power of life. And surely the implication from his flow of thought is that he gains the authority to raise the dead and give life because the Father granted that authority to him. Jesus, beloved, was not randomly wandering around in his life doing things to show off his power. He was not. Please understand, the one that you follow, the Lord Jesus Christ, day by day, was fully submitted to his Father. And as he went from place to place, as he encountered person after person, he only engaged in the things that he saw his Father doing. Everything he did was in submission to, in obedience to his Father. Oh, this is so important for us to understand. Absolutely crucial for us to understand. You may remember when we were back in chapter one that I asked you, how did Jesus know the things that he knew about Nathanael? And we could ask that question about a number of people. How did he know what he knew about the woman at the well? And I guess you could say he knew all these things because he's God and as God he knows everything. But I think the better answer is that Jesus Christ on the earth was fully man with limited knowledge as a man, but he was fully submitted to his father and he heard things from his father, he saw things in his father and he moved and he spoke according to what he saw and according to what he heard. This is the way that our Lord lived and oh how I pray that we'll have ears to hear it today. Since such life-giving power also assumes the power to judge, Jesus says this in verses 22 and 23, if you'll look there with me. For the Father, again, another extreme statement, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him, even though the Father is the great God above all gods, even though many times in the Old Testament the Bible said that God alone is the judge of all things. He, out of love for his Son, has entrusted judgment to the Son. And the reason that the Father has delegated such a God-sized task to him is so that all will honor the Son to the same degree that they honor the Father. Imagine you're one of the Pharisees or religious leaders sitting there listening to Jesus' answer. They're saying, wait a minute, you're making yourself equal with God, and he's saying, that's exactly right. I have the power of resurrection, I have the power of life, and now I also want you to know something. God has entrusted to me personally the judgment of every soul in the universe, every soul that has ever existed or will ever exist. Beloved, this is a clear, clear claim to divinity, and believe me, the religious leaders of that day understood exactly the implications of what he was saying. So absolute is this truth, so absolute is this claim that Jesus said that those who refuse to honor the Son actually refuse to honor the Father who sent him. Let me put that another way. You cannot say that you worship God if you reject Jesus. You cannot. This world is filled with people who say, I don't really have much of a heart for religion, but I'm spiritual. I have my own path to God. Jesus is one way. There are other ways. None of that's true. That's a, a, a great, grand deception of the soul. You cannot reject Jesus and also honor God. You cannot worship God and fail to worship Jesus. This is the claim that he's making. And that claim is either true or Jesus Christ is a liar. There's really no in between. 
Whoever refuses to honor the Son rejects God. Whoever refuses to look to the Son and listen to the Son and gain life from the Son and walk in the ways of the Son has nothing to do with God, no matter what they say or what sorts of claims they make. As the author of Hebrews boldly teaches us, the Father has sworn and will not change his mind that Jesus Christ is the great King above all kings. He is the Lord above all lords. He is the high priest to end all high priests forever and ever and ever. So that in the end, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is not another way. Beloved, I hope we can see clear as day that Jesus affirmed the second accusation against him. In other words, he affirmed that he was, in fact, claiming to be God. And in his answer, in these verses that we've seen so far, in this answer, he is pushing it farther. He's saying it's a, it's a much more serious claim than you think I'm making. I have the power of resurrection and of life and of judgment in my hands. The other night I was saying to Eric Alexson and some of the other brothers that some people claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. And maybe it's true that he didn't say I am God in the way that we want him to say I am God, but please understand that John chapter five, among many other chapters, is an absolutely explicit, clear claim that he is saying I am God. The Jewish leaders understood this. This is why they wanted to kill him. Please, please ponder the extent of the statements Jesus is making about himself and think about how great he must be if these things are true. And as if this is not enough, he continues. Please look at verse 24. Jesus says again, truly, truly, earnestly, with all the passion I can muster in my heart, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So later we know in John 14, 6, Jesus will say very explicitly, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to God except for me. But he is implicitly saying the same thing right here. He is saying the great divide in humanity between those who are right with God and those who are not right with God is Jesus himself. He is saying that the difference between those who do good and those who do evil are those who believe in Jesus and those who reject Jesus. Again, there are many people who are doing what seem to be good things in the world and they're doing them in the names of God, in the name of God. But if they're rejecting Jesus Christ, they're actually not following God. They're actually doing evil things in the world. And so, accordingly, Jesus continues in verses 25 through 27. Let's read those together. Truly, Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, not of the Father, but the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man." Now, since Jesus says here that the hour is coming and is already here, I think that in these couple of verses, he's talking about the ministry that he has had from the time he was baptized and that he will have until the time he comes again at his second coming. In other words, I think he's talking about his earthly ministry, the stuff that's happening right now. And I think he's saying that he has the power to speak death, uh, life into death right now whether that's spiritual death 
like the woman at the well, near to Jacob's well, where she was spiritually dead, and Jesus, through his grace and power, spoke life into her so that she believed. Jesus spoke life into her village so that many of them believed. And I think he's saying that he also has the power to raise people from physical death, like we'll see in chapter 11, when Jesus just speaks a word and raises Lazarus from the dead. But whatever the particulars, again, I think that he has in mind his earthly ministry. And his main point is that as the Father has life in himself, so the Son has life in himself. As the Father is at work in the lives of dead people, both spiritually and physically dead people, so the Son is at work in the lives of such people. And since the Father has given him authority to judge, he will indeed judge, because he said he is the Son of Man. Now, you all haven't had the time to meditate on these things as I have in this last week, but when I got to that little phrase at the end of verse 27 that says, I'm going to judge specifically because I'm the son of man. It kind of threw me for a little bit of a loop. I just thought, why is he saying it that way? It seems an odd thing to say. At first I thought perhaps he's saying that he's judging as the son of man because he's the only one who is fully God and fully man. He's the only one who can judge man before God as God and man. But then as I meditated just a little bit more, I remembered Daniel seven thirteen through 14. You don't have to turn because I put it up here on the PowerPoint for you. But please listen to what Daniel has to say because I think Jesus is saying, I'm gonna judge everybody in the world because I'm this one that Daniel was prophesying about. Here's what Daniel said. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that is, he came to God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It is obvious enough that one with power like that also has the power of judgment in his hands. And so yes, God the Father entrusted all judgment to the Son because he is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. He is the one to whom God the Father will give all authority over all nations for all time and eternity. He is indeed one who is equal with God but as one who was fully submitted to God. So much so that he just came to fulfill what was already written about him. Jesus was not trying to strike out on his own and make a kingdom of his own. He came in full submission to his Father, only doing what the Father showed him, only saying what the Father told him. And with this, Jesus now, in my view of this passage, now turns our attention to the ultimate day of resurrection and of judgment. Please look at verses 29 through 30. Do not marvel at this, he said, which I I marvel at the fact that he said don't marvel at this. This is a lot to marvel at. But what he's saying is there's more to come. There's more to come that's gonna make these things look small. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, that is to say the voice of Jesus, and come out. Those who have gone done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Beloved, as I said earlier, I fear that we're so familiar with the things of Christ that we won't hear the power of these words. Jesus is saying that he literally has the ability to speak and to cause every person to come out of their grave. 
And for people like my mother who were cremated and the ashes were scattered, I don't know how he's gonna do it, but he had the power to create her once. He'll have the power to recreate her again. Somehow or other, he's gonna speak. All he has to do is speak, and it will happen. All the dead will rise. All of the dead will rise without exception. Think about how great Jesus must be in order for that to be true. I just passed by a graveyard the other day and I was thinking about this passage and I got to thinking, what if I stood in front of that graveyard and tried to command everybody to get up out of their graves? And what if they did it? I mean, what would that say about the power that was in my hands? And what does it say about the power that's in Jesus' hands that he speaks and every human being that's ever lived raises up from the grave? It's amazing, beloved. It is such an extreme claim about his power that if you get it, if you hear it, if you embrace it, it will cause you to worship. And not only will he cause them to rise, but he will speak to them permanent and irreversible judgment. Whatever the Son says in that day will be the judgment that those people will live with forever and ever and ever. He said, all those who have done good will forever enjoy the resurrection of life, and all those who have done evil will forever endure the resurrection of judgment. They will live under the just condemnation of God forever and ever. And what particular kind of good and evil does Jesus have in mind here? Is he just saying that people that go around the earth doing good things, they're in with God, and people who go around the earth doing evil things are out with God? I don't, I don't think that's what he's saying because of what he said in verse 24. In verse 24, he said the great divide between humanity is those who believe in Jesus and therefore honor the Father and those who reject Jesus and therefore reject the Father, who dishonor the Father. And by the way, I should just apologize to everybody sitting over here because I just made these the people that are the resurrection of life and you all are the resurrection of death. I apologize. Next time I'll try to switch it around so you don't feel like I'm picking on you. But that's the difference between good and evil. If we're not careful with this, beloved, we can be, become involved in a heresy. I remember this book that I had to read in, in seminary, and I do put it that way, I had to read the book. The book was called Godding. It put, took the name God and turned it into a verb, Godding. And her name was so unique, I've always remembered it. The author's name was Susan Thistlethwaite. How do you like that? She said in this book that it doesn't really matter what you believe about God. All that matters is that you do good. It doesn't matter what religious banner you're under. If you do good, you'll be all right with God. Well, that's a lie. That's heresy. And if we're not careful, people like that will take texts like this and deceive people. So remember, verse 24 is the controlling verse here. The difference between the resurrection of the good to eternal life and the resurrection of the evil to eternal judgment is belief in Jesus Christ. That's it period, and end of story. And with that, I want you to notice, after Jesus said so many things about himself, I want you to notice how he wrapped this up in verse 30. So powerful. He brings us back to the beginning. He said it again. I can do nothing, not a single thing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Since Jesus is not able to do a single thing from himself, but only does what he sees the Father doing, only speaks what he hears the Father saying, he will judge every soul according to the will of the Father. In a sense, the Father has delegated all judgment to the Son, but in another sense, the Father is still the great judge of the universe because the Son has a heart to turn back and say, yes, Father, but what would you have me do? How would you have me judge? As I hear... 
So I judge, beloved, that is so simple and so profound. All the power in the hands of Jesus Christ happily submitted to his Father. Because Jesus will only judge as he hears his Father speak, he is utterly confident to say in these verses that his judgment is just. It's right, it's true, it's pure, it's holy. No, no better judgment could be made. No better judgment will ever be made. In fact, I think that one of the things that will cause all of creation to worship Jesus forever is the perfect wisdom with which he judges every single soul. One of the problems with human justice in any country, in any justice system, is that it is very difficult for us to, to match the punishment with the crime in an exact way. Even those who are under the just condemnation of Jesus forever will turn back and honor him and worship him for making a perfect decision. You perfectly matched my punishment with my crime. And he did this because he has a heart to listen to his father and to only speak the things that he hears his father say. I wonder how much wiser we would all be as judges if we learned to live in that way. Oh, beloved, Jesus is so high, so powerful, and yet at the same time, he is absolutely humble before God his Father. He inspires me, I admire him so much, and I pray that you'll join me in worshiping him. So how has Jesus answered his accuser so far? He said that he healed this man on the Sabbath, commanded him to take up his mat and walk because he was working the works of his Father. And he did this because that's what his Father showed him to do, and his father showed him these things because his father loves him. And yet, as great as this thing was, Jesus said, it's nothing compared to what's coming. Because the day is coming when the father will reveal the fullness of who I am. Every eye will see me, every ear will hear me, every soul will receive my judgment, and every knee will bow before me to the glory of God the Father. And as great as a position as that puts Jesus in, it just amazes me that he ends by saying, but I can't do anything on my own. I don't even seek my own will. I do not seek my own will. I seek the will of my Father who is in heaven. So in just a couple more minutes, let me just address this question. What can we learn from these things for our own lives? Well, I think that in revealing the way that Jesus lived his life on, on earth, I think he was simply answering an accusation before him but I think he's also commending a way of life before us. In fact, I think this is the life that he is trying to shape in every single one of us, and he will not quit until he is done. It's roughly equal to the process of sanctification. Even as the Father revealed his will to the Son, so the Son reveals his will to everyone who seeks him. Even as the Son humbly submitted himself to the Father, so he calls us, every one of us, to humbly submit ourselves to the Son. This process of revelation and submission happens as we open up the Word of God day by day. Just simply read it. Seek to understand it. Listen to our Father. Learn from our Father. Seek power from our Father to walk in His ways. We talk to our Father the whole time, through the whole entire process. We engage in the body of Christ. We talk with one another about these things. Beloved, as we make a life of the word and of prayer and of obedience, believe me, Jesus day by day will open our eyes to the things that he is doing. You'll find yourself in a Cub Foods or at a park somewhere fishing, and I say that because I think that's exactly what I'm gonna do after church today, go find a park and fish, and who knows when we're there doing whatever we're doing, who knows but that God will unmask our eyes and reveal the work that he has for us to do.
The way Jesus is teaching us to live is very simple, beloved, but it is very, very serious. We seek our Father until his will becomes clear. And when his will is not clear, we just commit ourselves to fixing our eyes upon him. We listen to the advice of Paul where he said, don't be anxious about the things of your life, but pray, 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 pray. Talk to your Father. Fill your mind with his word and the peace of God that passes understanding will belong to you until the day when your Father is pleased to make things clear. Indeed, our lives with God is not really about getting information out of God. Our lives with God is about living in fellowship with God. And as we live in fellowship with him, of course, as a father who loves us, he makes the path clear to us whenever it is that he feels that that is wise. So we should know this about Jesus. He can literally do nothing from himself but only what he sees his father doing. And we should know this about ourselves. We should learn to do nothing from ourselves but only what we see the son doing. This is the target of the Christian life, beloved. The goal of our sanctification is that we would live in this way fully and happily submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of our lives with Christ is to get to the place where we can honestly and humbly say, I only do what Jesus shows me to do. That's it. I don't do anything but what he shows me to do. And I only speak the things that Jesus gives me to say. That's it. Beloved, that is the goal of sanctification. That is a life, not of extremism, but of love. That is a life of a person fully submitted to his or her creator until the next stage comes. There is more fruit and more joy in this way of life than we can imagine. And so I pray that as we leave this place, we'll commit ourselves to doing just two things. First of all, I wanna encourage you to meditate carefully on John 5, 19 through 30, and to ponder your present way of life in light of what you see there. In other words, I'm asking you, read and see what Jesus said about himself, and just ask God, is this the way I live? Is this characterizing my life? What does this passage say about my life? And Father, what would you have me do? We need to think about what's really driving us, what's really guiding us, what's really leading us in this life because everything hangs on this, beloved. Making something of your life or wasting your whole entire life hangs on this right here. Do you have a heart to listen and follow your Father or not? Second, I'm gonna encourage us to discuss these things with one another. After church in the hallways, This afternoon, as each of us does whatever we do, discuss these things in our families, discuss these things among our community groups, discuss these things when we have a cup of coffee together, even though, Tracy, I saw you shake your head that you don't like coffee. Those of us who have coffee together, let's talk about these things. How's it going? How is your life of submission going? Do you have a heart to hear the voice of the Father, to follow in the ways of the Father or not? Beloved, it's crucial for us to get to the roots of what's motivating us, and so I commend you to talk about these things together in the presence of God. Let's pray that he'll help us. Our Father, we thank you with all of our hearts for revealing these things to us. We thank you for so kindly speaking through your word and for preserving your word. We thank you so kindly for giving us the example of Jesus Christ in life, for him being so clear about what motivated him and what still motivates him to this day. We thank you for commending this way of life to us, and I pray, Father, that we would hear it not so much as a condemnation, but as an invitation. Surely, Father, as I have pondered these things, I have had a lot of conviction in my life about the things that I'm doing that are coming from my flesh. And I invite that, Father, I welcome that. I thank you for that. I thank you for pointing out the parts of me that are not fully submitted to you, but Father, even your rebuke comes as an act of love. 
And so I pray again that we would hear these things as an invitation. Come and learn this way of life. Only do what you see your Father doing. Only say what you hear your Father speaking. Father, thank you for what you'll do with this word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.